Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available 20-minute samples of recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new sample podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. In addition, you can access the full-length version of this and all NACSW podcasts at no cost simply by becoming a member of NACSW or by ordering a copy of this podcast at a reasonable cost on NACSW's online bookstore. We hope you enjoyed today's sample podcast. Hi, we here at the North American Christians and Social Work want to thank you for selecting this continuing education course. We appreciate your interest in pursuing ongoing trainings sensitive to the thoughtful integration of faith, social work practice, and spirituality. We hope that this training meets or exceeds your expectations and is useful to you. If you have any questions during or after the training, please don't hesitate to contact us at info at NACSW.org. Thanks again and enjoy the training. Now, lest we get too overboard because I know we have a few of them in here, um, a little known secret, don't tell my me, I am also an LCPC from uh, State of Illinois. And so uh, I'm, I'm duly licensed. And so for those of you who are LPC, I don't know how you have your LPC, and there may be others in the room. Um, I got you back now. Uh, and we've been there and through all of that. So uh, we can talk about it in terms of social work or counselor ed values if people want to do that. Uh, but again, uh, the two parallel on this kind of a discussion, and so I don't know that we need to tear them apart. Uh, but uh, we can we can go there. Uh, if that's among the credentials, you know the crowd that you mentioned. <laughs> For probably reasons. Uh, we want to be able to also then identify the uh, implications of at least five different values from DSM-5. One of the things, and I will go through why this has happened in our field, but one of the things that I'm real conscious of when I teach values and ethics in social work, uh, as opposed to in a seminary context. Last week I was with the State Board of Chaplains, uh, and when you talk to chaplains about values and ethics, values and ethics in most other professions outside of counseling start from a theology or a philosophy. Because after all, ethics is the applied field of philosophy. You want to know what philosophers do other than think grandiose thoughts, their actual application field is called ethics. And so for the most part, uh, in other fields, we start from uh, a major philosophy area. Every time I try to talk about major philosophy in most of my classes, students glaze over, uh, and we don't get very far. Can you say remember from the students? <laughs> so bottom line is that uh, the field of social work went into a very different style of values and ethics and we'll again get into some of that. So we'll talk about what that looks like and where we head with that. What we're going to start off by doing is actually talking a little bit of philosophy, uh, a little bit of humanism, evidence-based, positivism, and of course, faith and practice. Uh, we will walk through the uh, NASW Code of Ethics very briefly, uh, and then discussion of specific values. There we go. Uh, oh, there is one other thing. I'm stealing this from the speaker on set. There it is. Um, I'm stealing this from the speaker on Saturday. Uh, the speaker on Saturday made a big thing about how he, uh, uh, in full disclosure, he didn't know anybody anything. 
Uh, trust me, I don't get paid by nobody. <laughs> Uh, the reason for that is that when you start talking about the DSM series, historically, many of the researchers were being paid by pharmaceutical companies. And so, consequently, for full disclosure, we had to disclose that we were um, working with pharmaceutical companies. Um, I, I pay out a lot of money to the pharmaceutical companies, but the last time I knew, nobody ever paid me for one. So, good news is that we're clean of that particular set of issues. Mrs. Cruz! Are you all ready? We're going to get started. <laughs> Mrs. Cruz is 81 years old. All the other cases you're going to get are with children, so I figured I had to throw in a little bit. Recently, her family was told that she had been diagnosed with a 294.11, major neuro, uh, neurocognitive disorder due to her significant decline in memory, Steadily progressive gradual decline in cognition without extended plateaus and no evidence of mixed ideology. Are you ready for this, Howard? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, under DSM 4, they basically said she had dementia of the Alzheimer type. Okay? Um, in a lot of ways, what DSM 5 is going to do is to work from categories and help us to be more specific in what we do because I've heard Howard say this a number of times, and so I'll pick on him, but Alzheimer's disease has a bad habit of becoming sort of a wastebasket diagnosis because too much stuff gets thrown in there. And we can say that same thing about a whole bunch of other things. Let's talk ADHD, right? Can you say amen to this? All right. So there are lots of other diagnoses that have sort of become these places where we put things, where we sort of park people's problems. DSM-5 is all about a, a diagnosis that's going to somehow help you to treat people. Oh my goodness, we're really going to do that? I thought they were just a good patient. DSM-5 is all about moving us to, to have an accurate diagnosis so that from an accurate diagnosis, we can then work with people in a way that makes sense. And oh, by the way, we really don't want to label children if we can help them. Let's think that one through a little bit because of the long-term impacts, whether it's socially in the context of some kind of record following or whether it is uh, in the child's own self-esteem. Uh, those labels go a long way, and the question is where they go. Carol and I were talking about even medications that are untried with children and uh, how that impacts uh, down the road. And so uh, there's lots of things about this that uh, we have to be kind of conscious of, and one of them is that my microphone keeps falling out. Hate it when that happens. You know, there's a reason uh, for at least the young women in the room why your grandparents have you spreading needles. And this is right up there because it means having to put the thing in the little hole and make it work. Okay. Having bored you to death with that one, we'll move on. Right. So. The question is, to make it in small bites, her, my uh, discussion, or her and Rob's uh, introduction, what we need to do is begin to figure DSM-4 versus DSM-5. For starters, DSM-5 is smaller. Sure, it's got fewer pages to it. Some of you will be relieved by that because you're carrying around all those books. And, uh, but you'll be glad to know that for the next two years, all my students have to carry both of them, so they're not accomplishing <laughs> 
But be that as it may, again, we have two years to bring this in, and therefore two years to see whether or not it's going to work. There is some feeling in my mind that maybe it won't work. Uh, it, it, it does not say, it's, it very deliberately does not move toward trying to understand the issues that are necessary for insurances, which, of course, insurances help us to get paid. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the insurance companies pick up on this and where they go with it. Um, but uh, there are some things that the insurance companies are really excited about. Uh, and so it is possible that it won't go anywhere. For those of you who don't have licenses yet, FYI, the, uh, for the next two years, you will be, um, your licensing exams will come under DSM-4. And it will only be then two years from now that they will upgrade to DSM-5 for licensing exams. For those of you who have already graduated and haven't passed your exams, that should be motivation. And the program is what you know is the old DSM-4 system. Okay. Most of you are probably familiar with the history of the DSM series, but uh, for those of you who, uh, like me, are recovering community organizers, um, there, there is a fascinating history to it. There's also a typo in it. Uh, it uh, in the DSM-5, it says that uh, the DSM series is based upon work that started in 1844. I think not. I'm thinking it's a typo, it should be 1944. Because effectively, no less than Carl Menninger and the folks in the U.S. Army, we get a lot of advances in medicine from the military in times of war. And the list just goes on and on from all the various wars. But in this particular case, Carl Menninger was in the military, and what he was doing was attempting to figure out how do you communicate what's going on with a particular soldier when you're moving them from one VA hospital to the next? And how do we be consistent about that? Because if you simply make what would amount to uh, as observations of the person and pass them on, everybody's perspective is going to be a little different, and therefore we're not going to have any real consistency. So he came up with the first list in 44. It evolved into DSM-1 in, in 52. Um, and the guy up Saturday sat up here and said that he had, in fact, practiced during all of these. I have to admit I've only practiced through four of them uh, because I, I was born in 51, and so I really didn't do much with DSM-1. <laughs> but uh, the DSM-2 and DSM-3 series are ones that I remember very clearly uh, and practiced a long time under before DSM-4 and all the various gyrations of both 3 and 4. I didn't bother to put them in here. But you can kind of see where it came from. Um, it's critical that you think about the nature, though, of how these systems... I don't know you can hit that. It's too hard. Um, <coughs> how these various systems took place. For the most part, DSM-2 through DSM-4 were built as much on philosophies of individual therapy approaches as they were on any kind of evidence-based practice. Uh, DSM-2 is all about Sigmund Freud. No real surprise, right? This is the 1950s. Um, keeping in mind that Pavlov had been doing his work forever, but up until about the 1980s, most of the behavioral paradigms were greeted with suspicion by the general counsel in the community. Uh, and, in fact, my friend Elsie Beeston always used to complain that uh, only the behaviorists had to somehow defend themselves by having an ethics chapter at the end. 
that she said every counseling textbook ought to have an ethics chapter at the end, but only the behaviors had to have that up until around 1980. So, uh, for the most part, DSM-2 followed along the lines of diagnosing with Sigmund Freud. Sounds like a dance, doesn't it? Diagnosing with Sigmund Freud. I wonder if that's a two-step or a line. The symbolism there is killing me, but I don't know that. <laughs> DSM-3 and DSM-4 were all about the individual philosophies of different theories. For example, I mentioned this a few minutes ago, uh, DSM-4 and now DSM-5, as it's in the diagnostic section, is all about the work of Theodore Mann under the heading of personalities. Now, most of you have taken some personality tests that actually connect up with the work, work of Carl Jung. What's the test that you always give, Rob? <coughs> Myers-Briggs is a union test, and therefore, technically, what you should take out of that is information out of Carl Jung's grab bag of understandings of conflict. Um, and it's not per se in DSM-4, very clearly. There is one element within DSM-4 that begins to reflect his work. Most of the work actually comes from the work of Theodore Milan. So, uh, if you learn the work of Theodore Milan, you sort of understand the system. Most of these systems, however, were more philosophy than they were science. They were more thinking about a good idea. What was the sample size for Sigmund Freud? Let's see how good all, at least my alumni are. What was Sigmund Freud's sample size as a scientist? Yeah, and how many? Hidden M at 27. Maybe 28 if you included this mirror. <laughs> he sort of needed that most of the time to figure that out. Uh, but for the most part, he was dealing with a very small sample size. What he was dealing with was a combination of philosophy and logic. We take a look at it. What's an Oedipus complex? What's an Oedipus? Surely you had freshman Greek mythology. What's an Oedipus? Um, it's basically saying that you're, the son is in love with the mother. Right. And, and what's the Greek mythology that that's tied to? That Oedipus was left on a mountain to die because when they told his future or his or future back then, it said that he was going to kill his father, marry his mother, and have kids with his mother. And in the end, trying to run away from that because he was adopted by a family, he ended up actually killing his real father and marrying his mother. I hope this is on the videotape because all of the people who teach Greek mythology at Baylor need to see this. <laughs> <laughs> Someone remembers Greek mythology. That's wonderful. Absolutely. The uh, whole issue is that, how, just how scientific does that sound, right? Okay. I mean, you get the symbolism of it, but it's sort of hard to make uh, evidence-based practice out of uh, uh, you know, the whole concept that you're working with. So the, the original concepts often had more philosophy behind them than they actually had science. And that's okay. But it begs the question, and we're going to talk more about this, it begs the question, right at the moment, the various systems have some continuity between them. Now, those of you who have worked within one of the diagnostic systems uh, will say, oh, well, there's these problems and these problems. 
but there's an umbrella construct that sort of holds them together if you follow it back. Um, into the new evidence-based system, there's no value for that umbrella. And therefore, it may or may not exist within the diagnostic streams that you're most interested in. So that's one of the changes that you're going to see in all of this is the removal of the evidence base. Okay. Anything else about the history that anybody wants to talk about? I feel like I'm going to bore you to death about this. Any concerns? Defining mental health, mental disorder. What's a mental disorder? The person is crazy, crackers, nuts. <laughs> mental disorders, um, by definition, have basically five, five elements to them. There's what we call mental disorder in the center, but around the outside, what you've got is uh, personal distress. Uh, personal distress, there's something wrong, okay? There is um, the violation of social norms. Now, how subjective is that? You know, the whole cultural issue plays into their big time because what might be considered normal to one might not be normal to another. That, that is why DSM 1 through 3, or at least 2 and 3 that I know of, uh, according to the feminist psychologists uh, uh, that are out there, would tell you that PMS really is not as pathological as most males would think it is. <laughs> Having raised two daughters, I question that, but <laughs> bottom line is that it is evolving out of the system because it's, of course, a male perspective as opposed to something that would be experienced by the entire population. Um, disability. Something about the, the way mental disorder works, it has to be somehow a functional issue for us. And that's a radical new thought. In fact, what we're going to be doing is thinking in terms of is the situation, the clinical context that you're working with, is it symptomic or dystonic? Sounds like it ought to be a symptom, right? Symptomic and dystonic. I'm not getting anywhere with that one. No laughs there at all. <laughs> symptonic and dystonic. What does it mean? If it's symptonic, what does that mean to you? I like it. Okay? Uh, how many times have you sat down with a person who's addicted to something and you say, tell me about your love of pick a substance? And they say, oh yeah, good stuff, man. And then you try to figure out what they're there for. They're there because they have a fight with their spouse, or they're having trouble with the kids, or maybe they don't want the bosses just coming down on them. Or maybe that no good judge just didn't understand the fifth that they had before they went on dress. You know what I mean? Okay. If if fact of the matter is if a person has a symptomic condition, they're unlikely to want to change it. Therefore, the prioritization in DSM-5 is for dystonic conditions. Dystonic conditions basically meaning those are the ones you don't like. Those are the ones that, uh, in the words of a psychologist friend of mine from years ago, she said, you know, there are just some things that are like a pebble in your shoe. And where the sneaker rubs, that's where you start working. So the, we start by asking ourselves the question, is it symptomic or dystonic? Now that's going to make our friends in addictions get real worried. 
Because that might mean you're going to treat somebody for something other than the substance abuse first. And I'm interested to see how that plays itself out in clinical practice. Okay? But be that as it may, the final category up here uh, is dysfunction. Usually, a mental disorder has a dysfunction to it. That's why we all coined the, uh, the question, so how's that working for you? Right? You got a person who's been doing a whole lot of stuff, and then, so how's that working for you? Okay. I get the fact that it's hard to read in, in the yellow in the background. I tried to change some of that. I apologize. I should have changed some of that. You know, I'm going to have to put questions about this thing. For the most part, the principles of Thank you for listening today to this 20-minute sample of NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. Just a reminder that you can access the full-length version of this and all NACSW podcasts at no cost by simply becoming a member of NACSW or by ordering a copy of this podcast at a reasonable cost on NACSW's online bookstore. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops, which provide CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, and our online continuing education program. Also, we invite you to join NACSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in to our podcast session today.